Warning, this episode contains strong language and adult content. Listener discretion is advised. Additionally, this episode's reading carries a content warning for children in perilous situations and description of injuries. If you would like to skip this, please fast forward 10 minutes and 30 seconds from the beginning of the reading. Welcome to Tales from the Trunk, reading the stories that didn't make it. I'm Hilary B. Bisniaks. Listeners, I am super excited to welcome, to introduce you to somebody whose work I've been a fan of for quite some time, uh, and we just happen to have them on the show now. Foz Meadows, welcome to the podcast. Hello, thank you very much for having me. Absolutely. Uh, Full full uh, disclosure, this is now early June. Typically, I try to get episodes recorded at least a month in advance of when they come out, but life has been increasingly, uh, you know, how I life think. be. <laughs> uh, and Foz, you were... You were absolutely gracious enough to respond at the last minute and say, hell yeah, I'd love to come on the show. <laughs> well, uh, as a, as a chronically undersocialized extrovert, it is always, I'm always going to say yes to talking to people. Hell yeah. <laughs> so Foz, uh, can you tell us a little bit about the story that you're bringing to us today? Okay. So I had a couple of options to go through. The one I think I've settled on is rather dramatically titled at this point in my drafts, Blood Penance. Oh! Um, <laughs> it's, uh, it's about a 20,000-word uh, draft. Obviously, I'm not going to read all of it, uh, just the first chapter. But um, something I started a few years ago, and I really like the momentum of it. I like some of the details I've put in the world, but I don't really have like a full plot mapped out for it. I've just sort of got some vibes and some red string connecting some ideas. And since mood, mood. I started it, <laughs> since I started it, uh, you know, other stories have come to the fore and I've had more passion and, and uh, con conceptual, you know, drive for them. So it's just sort of languishing. Um, mm -hmm. But I, there's enough bits in it that if I don't come back to it in the future, I will take, I will steal from it magpie-like and oh, yep, yep, yep. its parts. Um, so <laughs> We love so, to be story magpies. <laughs> Alright, so this is chapter one of the draft that is currently known as Blood Penance. He woke to aching lungs and a pall of smoke. Groggy and disoriented, he lifted his head from the hot stone floor and flinched to see a grotesque pile of half-dressed bodies, bloodied and burning and dead. Mm. Roaring flames engulfed the rafters, fanned by the wind that gusted through a smouldering hole in the wall. He ached all over, but the pain in his head and face was blinding. He nearly blacked out twice while trying to rise. 
He finally lurched upright just as a burning beam collapsed beside him, throwing up sparks that failed to ignite his clothing only because it was soaked in blood, though whether it was his own, he didn't know. Coughing, he saw the door was blocked and staggered out through the hole instead, emerging into a courtyard strewn with debris. Away from the flames, the wind was cold and biting, laden with the acrid scents of ash and spell shot. He tipped his head up, looking for he didn't know what, and felt a cold, sick dread settle in his gut at the sight of a massive red skyship docked at a distant spire, flanked by dozens of smaller craft, all bearing the same device. A red skyship meant the end, though he didn't know why. He kept staring at it at the surrounding tableau of sanded buildings and screaming people, heart pounding as he realised he neither recognised the burning city in which he stood, nor recalled his own name. Pounding pain swelled behind his eyes. Almost he collapsed again, but clung to his broken consciousness with stubborn animal terror. Someone ran past him as he straightened, jostling his shoulder. He turned to follow the movement, watching as a half-dressed woman ran pell-mell around a nearby corner. With no other knowledge of what to do, he followed her at a lurching run. Moving quickly, tore at his muscles and wrenched his ribs, but he didn't dare stop. He forced himself to keep going, past burning parks and thin canals clogged with refuse, past smashed-in buildings and broken glass. Terrified people ran in and out of crumpled houses, hauling with them whatever goods they could carry. Hoofbeats rang loud on the paved road. He barely had time to step aside as a riderless heart went thundering past, a broken saddle half off its back and a scraggle of cloth in its tines. Passing through what remained of a fallen arch, he stopped wheezing and cast around for somewhere less exposed to catch his breath. After a moment, he spied a slim side alley between two houses. He limped over to it, coughed as he braced his shoulder against the wall, then coughed again, and again, deep, racking barks that only stopped when he hopped up two mouthfuls of bloody dark mucus and bile. Ooh. Panting, he looked up and away from the awful mess and froze to find a wide-eyed, terrified child staring back at him. For several long seconds, neither of them moved. The child was hunched against the opposite wall, trying and failing to hide behind the remains of a smashed crate, one knee drawn up to, he took a moment, assaying their features and made a probable judgment, her chest, against which she was also clutching a cloth-wrapped bundle. Her other leg lay flat on the ground, though it took him a moment to realise why. The lower bone was broken, not quite protruding through the skin, but near enough for white to show beneath brown. Mm -hmm. Are you, he rasped, then stopped, the words dissolving into another coughing fit. Nothing came up that time, but when he raised his head again, the girl was still staring at him, mouth pinched with pain and fear. Are you alone? A long pause followed. Eventually, she gave a tiny nod. <laughs> that makes two of us, then. The bundle in her arms moved, and he startled, peering at it anew. Or is it three? The girl blanched, clutching it tighter. The wriggling increased in response until a small furry head popped up from a swaddle of cloth. The creature swiveled to blink at him with round gold eyes, its sleek, shiny fur gleaming between tufted ears. It was a gyacat kit, old enough to have weaned, but still too young to fly. The ragged girl's custody of it felt strangely incongruous, though he didn't know why. It wasn't as if he had any handy basis for comparison. His thoughts were fuzzy, his knowledge jagged and incomplete. He wiped his mouth on the back of his hand, grimacing as this introduced him to yet another unpleasant taste. Somewhere nearby, a woman started screaming, high and terrified, only for the sound to be abruptly cut off. Shouts echoed and were torn away as the wind changed, bringing with it the distant sounds of battle. The girl huddled back against the wall again, trembling as the giant cat buried its face in her neck. He stared upwards again, again tracking the streaks of smoke in the pale blue sky. I can carry you, he said, hoping it was true. Both of you, out of the city. Do you want that? More screams, just as swiftly curtailed as the first had been. The girl bit her lip and nodded, though her eyes remained wary and frightened. All right, 
he exhaled the words like a prayer. All right. His bloody shirt was already torn in several places. He ripped a strip from it, gesturing at her broken leg. The girl paled but nodded understanding, screwing her eyes shut as he picked the likeliest splint from the shattered crate and set about binding the break. His hands moved with an instinct he didn't dare question. Her skin was hot to the touch, the bone grinding as he set the splint. It must have been excruciating, but whether through exhaustion, fear, or some other terrible discipline, she didn't cry out, just whimpered and panted, open-mouthed as she clutched the rescued gyre cat. When it was done, he rocked back on his heels and scooped her into his arms, shifting her so the kit was pressed between their chests, her arms around his neck. By the size of her horns, she must have been 10 or 11 at least, but she was otherwise so skinny and undersized that even in his current state, he found he could bear her easily. There, he adjusted his grip. There, that works. He took a breath and headed back into the chaos. Though he still couldn't recall the significance of the red sky ships beyond a nebulous sense of dread, it was clear the bombarded city was steadily taking on enemy combatants. More than once, he had to hide from oncoming soldiers, their red lamellar armor shining like fresh blood as they descended from their ships or double marched through the streets. Mm. It both frightened and relieved him that they all seemed to be heading inward back to the heart of the city instead of toward its gates. He didn't know how he knew where the gates were either, but picking his path through the tumult, some inaccessible memory nonetheless prodded him in the right direction. Richer, more stately quarters steadily gave way to crowded row houses, shattered tenements and public spaces thronged with fleeing civilians. Fire was everywhere in bursts and blooms, yet contained from total spread by the dominance of stone. As he crossed the remains of what must have been a prosperous market, he heard a baby screaming and flinched, clutching the ragged girl closer, feeling the press of her blunted prepubescent horns against his chest. He was exhausted, ears ringing almost continuously, and yet he felt strangely detached from the escalating pain, as though it were happening to someone else. Rowdy crowds streamed out through the city gates, stretching ahead up a sloping road like a tattered funeral pennant. He joined them, bumping shoulders with fleeing strangers, some laden down with household possessions, others bloody and barehanded or bearing only a child, as he did. Many children walked unattended, wailing high and disconsolate. As he watched, one toddler fell to his knees, sobbing furiously until an older boy hauled him onto his hip. Far ahead, he could make out the shape of at least one wagon, presumably hitched to a heart, but anyone possessed of an individual mount was long gone. He felt a brief, angry pang at not having grabbed for the riderless heart he'd seen earlier, even knowing that such an attempt would likely have resulted in further injury. His head swam anew at the thought. He blinked spots from his eyes, grit his teeth, and kept going. As his part of the mob approached the wall, there was an increase in shouting behind them, sudden and panicked. He turned his head just in time to see soldiers moving into the marketplace from three directions, armed with a mix of long spears, swords, and mage locks. In his arms, the girl whimpered. Ahead of him, a slim gap opened in the mob as various people turned to see what was happening. He ran for it, squeezing sideways to fit and kept going as his ears rang with the first crack of unleashed spell shot. Oozing chaos turned to frenzied panic. Screaming, the mob ran, jostling and shoving in their terror to get through the choke point. Nearby, a limping woman fell and was trampled by those behind her. Someone tried to extend a hand and was knocked aside in turn. More bursts of spell shot followed, unleashing new screams as compressed mage fire sprayed the crowd. Shoving, running, stumbling, he slipped and kept his feet only by half falling into a bigger man who knocked him upright again. The ragged girl screamed as her leg was jostled, the sound bitten off into hiccuping sobs as they cleared the gate, and the mob spread out like game birds driven from cover. Even so, he kept running, compelled by fear to get as far from the burning city as possible. And yet... The expected collapse never came. He ran until he couldn't run, staggering on to walk through the crowds of survivors. Refugees, he realized dimly. We're refugees now. He looked back once from the crest of a distant hill as the sky began to fade. The gates of the city were shut. 
Overhead, red sky ships bobbed at anchor, and still that first ship, largest of all, stuck tight to the gleaming spire. He wanted to weep, but couldn't. He glanced down at the girl, who still held tight to his shirt. Her eyes were shut, in sleep or unconsciousness, he didn't know which, but her breathing was quiet and even. He kept on walking. By evening, the city was gone from sight. The procession of fleeing refugees had degraded into a long, intermittent trickle of humanity. Many had stopped either from exhaustion or to set up makeshift camps in the rolling rocky grassland that flanked the road, while others lay where they'd fallen, prey now to human and animal scavengers alike. Mm. When the road forked beneath a massive stone outcrop, it was clear most people were keeping left where the road was wider and better maintained, and ignoring the narrower right-hand path, which curved toward a distant forest. He hesitated, weighing the choice with as much intelligence as his addled thoughts could manage, and then went right, partly because the ground that way sloped downhill, but mostly because he judged that both he and the girl were presently more vulnerable to people than animals. Staggering on, he saw some tracks in the dusty path that suggested some few others, at least, were ahead of him, but however many had passed that way, he saw no one. Night mm. fell. The air chilled, and the girl began to shiver and sweat, her grip on him loosening. He briefly worried that the giant cat might flee, but the little creature was evidently as tired and hungry as its human companions. All it did was free its fledgling wings from the swaddle, make a weary churr sound, and resettle itself between them. Mm. He was staggering now, head splitting such that he could scarcely keep upright, and though the greater moon was full, the whole world swam in shadows. He had no conscious memory of stopping. One minute he was shambling forwards to he knew not where, the next he was on his knees at the roadside, unable to continue. With the last of his strength, he laid the girl gently in the grass and collapsed beside her, putting an arm across her body in the vain, useless hope that it might somehow keep her safe. The last thing he felt was the prick of the kit's claws as it clambered onto his hip, and then he knew nothing at all. Whew. Jesus, I could not breathe through that entire thing. That was amazing. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, just vibes for days. <laughs> Yeah, it's a uh, as I said, it's it is it is a vibe based uh, draft. <laughs> mm hmm. We um, are a vibes based economy here. That yes. is, <laughs> I support that utterly. I, like, it felt very much like the opening to a lot of movies, but also like not in a bad way. Uh, <laughs> and, and, like. But also just like I'm I'm like right now just like very steeped in sort of refugee colonialism stories. Ah. Uh. <laughs> uh and so it just like like really just like went for the heart for me. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. So you mentioned that you'd put about 20,000 words into this uh, before getting wrapped up in other things. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that sort of uh, murder board, red string, connecting various things process for you? So I'm very much a pants... Well, okay, when I say I'm more of a pantser than a plotter, it's slightly true. I, I suspect I'm something of a hybrid mm -hmm. um, in that I do tend to start out with characters, a, a couple of what ifs and some vibes and mm -hmm. progressing from there. Cause I, I'll start with characters 
and something that is happening to a character and then extrapolating from there because characterization is hugely informed by context. So as mm -hmm. I'm writing what is happening to the character, I naturally have to sort of sketch out like a local idea of the context that they are inhabiting. What, what kind of person are they? How are they mm -hmm. seen in this context? What do they want? What is happening to them? How are they reacting to what's happening to them? And then as I start to fill in little world building blanks on that basis, um, it will sort of push the picture out. Like I often think about it, you know, when you used to play like an old school 90s video game mm -hmm. and the environment would visibly render as you progressed through it. Mm -hmm. So the bit around you would be very rendered. Everything sort of in the distance was pixelated, but it would become clearer as you move towards it. I feel like that's sort of how my mental imagining of things works as I'm mm -hmm. moving a character uh, through a story. So I'll end up with something like, okay, what if this, the red string will sort of be like, here is a thing I think would be cool if it was in this setting. Here is a couple of ideas that I've had for world building. Um, here is something that could constitute like an emotional high point or a denouement or mm -hmm. whatever. And then I will just see if I can push the story in vaguely that direction. Right. Um, and when it works, it's immensely satisfying. <laughs> um, but occasionally I get ahead of myself. Like you, I, I will lean too heavily into the vibes mm -hmm. and get to a point where I've introduced too many elements that are not doing what the original vibe wanted. Mm -hmm. um, That's a mood. Yeah, so you've got to sort of, sort of try and corral not so much the story, but your expectations for the story mm -hmm. and deal with what you've already introduced. Um, so in the case of this draft, um, the original iteration, so I've said that the, sort of the, the, the girl with the broken leg that he picks up uh, is like 10 or 11 and that mm -hmm. was because the first time I wrote it I got like I think the first time I sort of got on a roll with it I wrote about 10,000 odd words 15,000 words um and then I realized oh I've introduced this girl and she was in the original version like four or mm -hmm. four or five she was much younger and I was like okay no if I introduce a child that that young to this kind of character in this kind of context she is going to cling on to him like a limpet Mm -hmm. And the rest of the narrative trajectory that I have for him does not involve a five-year-old child clinging to him like a limpet. Right. Um, like, I want her there, but she needs to have some degree of separation from mm -hmm. him, or this is going to be a story about him becoming a dad. Right. Um, and that's not what I, what I was aiming for. So I have to make her older so that when they get to the next scene and they get introduced to the new group of characters that they encounter um she's able to be more independent and also it means that she's got more of a her own sort of street sense and sense of independence and also mm -hmm. um wariness essentially mm -hmm. so she's got a better idea of how to react to this situation that she's found herself in right um, while still thinking this random guy got me out of a burning city and has helped me i am going to die on a battlefield for him if necessary mm -hmm. um fuck all you other people i don't know who you are but <laughs> he helped me so yeah um you're my dad now 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, obviously this show rejects all false binaries, uh, <laughs> whether gender or pants or plotter. Uh, take your pick. They're all fake. <laughs> uh, and we all we all fall somewhere in between. Uh, but, like, that is such a mood in terms of, um, like, having to strike that balance between just going where the vibes take you and going where, like, going where the story actually needs to be going. Yeah. It's, I mean, so another example of me doing that is, so the book I have out at the moment, A Strange and Stubborn Endurance, which is a queer romantic fantasy. Um, mm -hmm. When I was first, so I wrote that whole book, depending on how you measure it, uh, was either written in five months or five years. <laughs> um, because, it, like, the amount of time that I spent writing it, like physically writing it, was about five months total. It was mm -hmm. just they that those five months were sort of two and a half months at one point, you know, uh, like five, it, you know, and then this, with coming back to it piece to just sort of nibble at it and look at it mm -hmm. intermittently over sort of the next five years and then finishing it. Right. Um, so, cause there was a, a variety of life stuff that happened in the middle. Mm -hmm. um, as tends to happen. As tends to happen. But in the original version, um, there's no magic. Mm -hmm. um, or when I say the original version, I don't mean like full version. I wrote a full draft and then went back and added it in. I mean, when I started it, I was like, oh, this is a secondary world fantasy. And I'm sure I'll get to the magic at some point. Mm -hmm. but, the, but the early sections had none. And then I kept on thinking, oh, maybe it exists in this world. Or maybe I'm doing like a captive prince thing where it's a secondary world fantasy, but there's no magic. Mm -hmm. And then it got to a point where I the plot had plotted to where it was. And I was like, ah, this next bit only makes sense. The thing that the trajectory that I have in my head only makes sense if I, if there is a magical component. Mm -hmm. um, and then I had to sort of go back and figure out in terms of what I'd already done, how to make a magic system fit within that world where it needed to be sort of like, it needed to be able to do certain things but still be low key because mm -hmm. it was never going to be a story that was fixated on magic. It was more just like, this is a background detail. And, you know, I could be putting this much effort into building the currency, for instance, or mm -hmm. a, um, a, you know, a maritime system or something like a background detail of well, where it's like, it needs to be there and it needs to be developed enough to make sense in the context, mm -hmm. but not beyond Right. Like it doesn't need to become the focus. Um, it just needs to do this specific thing. It's very rude when those things come up so far into a draft. Yeah, so I think I was like 40 or 50,000 words in when that was the... And this is like a 150,000 word novel. So mm -hmm. like a third of the way in. Like, God damn it. Yeah. Well, now I have to lay the groundwork starting in chapter one for this shit. Yeah. <laughs> so I went back and edited it but other than those additions the the early like that first third of the novel is still very very close to the original mm -hmm. version 
and yeah, I think I think hopefully it it stands up. So yeah, and I mean, uh, queer romance for Pride, fucking happy Pride. Seems <laughs> like a great thing to be talking about. Yeah. <laughs> so one thing that I always love to get people's uh, opinions on when I have the pro- the proper person on for it and this has nothing to do with anything we've talked about so far uh (laughs) record scratch hard segue uh but you're a person who enjoys the gross and scary things this is true uh and i am also a person who enjoys the gross and scary things some of our listeners just don't understand that side so i i'd love if you could talk a little bit about what it is in horror that you love specifically so it's interesting because i did not always like the like horror i mean i mm-hmm. part of me wanted to but for most of my life i would get really scared mm-hmm. uh, watching horror movies like i would be compelled in a lot of instances to try them mm-hmm. but i would get really scared by them and then when we moved to America in 2018, and by 2018, like, uh, the preceding years, I'd been through some emotional stuff mm-hmm. um, and health stuff and various other fuckeries um, and had sort of emerged and was emerging into a, oh, look, my brain is slightly less fucked up than it was right. a year ago territory. Um, and so we got here in 2018. We got here in August. And as sort of like a being in America for Halloween for the first time thing, I sat down with my husband. I was like, let's watch some classic uh, horror movies. Mm -hmm. And I was anticipating that I would be scared during this process. Mm -hmm. And I was really surprised to find that I wasn't, that, that the fear that up until that point in my life I had felt watching horror was just not present anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, and I was able to just enjoy it as a compelling phenomenon. And I, you know, we were watching things like um, the original Halloween and mm-hmm. uh, the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre, um, things in that kind of vein. And I was like, well, maybe this is just because they're older horror movies, you know, mm-hmm. like the standards have changed. And then I went back and was watching, you know, like I watched all four of the original Scream movies and the original Scream movie terrified me when I was mm-hmm. um, and, and distressed me as well when I was a teenager when I sort of first saw it and I was just like oh this is messed up but it's I'm not frightened I'm having a different reaction to it and mm-hmm. it's a very long roundabout way of answering your question but I think it was I had reached a point where I had been through enough life stuff that I was like the part of your body that responds to fear I think was no longer being triggered by fictional content instead i found it kind of cathartic and soothing mm-hmm. whereas hitherto I, like i hadn't been through enough life stuff it was so it was like oh this is legitimately the scariest thing that i've ever experienced watching mm-hmm. a horror movie and then it was like no no no. i've dealt with the uk visa authority <laughs> um i i do not fear this anymore um mm-hmm. you know and i suspect that's what's happened But it's also just, I think, very compelling because, how do I explain this? Life is messed up. Mm -hmm. Um, The world is full of 
terrible, dark, scary, horrific, horrible things. And we can't, like, we can pretend that they're not there. But mm-hmm. probably sooner or later, all of us are going to encounter something upsetting, even if the only variant that we encounter is like the natural death of our parents or um, older mm-hmm. relatives um, predeceasing us in the most benevolent, natural way possible. That's still distressing. Like, you can't take grief out of the world, you can't take horror out of the world. Uh, mm-hmm. And often the horror is our bodies. Uh, and the ways that they choose to betray us, um, yeah. or you know, the in in the sort of classic Greek chorus, doomed by the narrative sense, when we have a, a congenital issue uh, or a chronic condition, um, you know, our body was doomed by the narrative before we ever woke up in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and seeing that discussed and explored in a way that is safe. It's this, you know, it's that same adrenaline thing of if you want to go on a roller coaster to experience what it might be like to nearly die while being flung at vast speeds off a moving train, uh-huh. then, you, <laughs> then you go on a roller coaster. You like the adrenaline hit. Um, because the body is in certain respects and the brain in certain respects is actually very simple. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't differentiate the way that it processes chemicals. It, it can't tell. If you're frightened and you're frightened because of something fictional. Your body doesn't know mm-hmm. that it's fictional unless, like, it, it might know that it's fictional to such a degree that you don't get scared in the first place. And that's what now happens to me. It's that if I ever do start to feel like a creeping sense of, of unease, mm-hmm. I visually pull back and I look at the fact that I'm watching in my lounge room and I'm like, ah, this is not <laughs> real. And uh-huh. the thing goes away. Um but it's the same reason that you engage in any form of, of fiction or narrative. You are seeking to feel certain mm-hmm. things in a controlled environment. And we don't only seek to feel, or most of us don't, just <laughs> the good emotions. We enjoy feeling the complicated ones when mm-hmm. we know there's going to be a payout for it emotionally. And particularly because in the real world, when we feel things of that nature, a lot of the time, because the world is random and frustrating, there is no catharsis. Mm-hmm. So we don't move through this nice linear emotional progression of feeling uh, buoyant to having that taken away to sort of slowly building back up to something, to feeling afraid, to getting a catharsis for the journey that we've just been on. We just sort of get left hanging mm-hmm. when we don't want to be. Um, I, actually <laughs> I actually have like a whole theory <laughs> um, that there is an element of dominance and submission to creating and consuming narratives mm-hmm. um, <laughs> where there is a form of like um, a form of dominance in creating a narrative because you are leading someone through an emotional experience yeah. or setting up an emotional experience for someone else to be led through and an element of submission to undertaking that because you are trusting somebody else to take you through an emotional experience like mm-hmm equivalent to being in a scene sometimes in its emotional intensity and the way that your body is going to chemically react to that, which I think mm-hmm. is why authors often on finishing a book will experience like a huge adrenaline surge and then immediately a drop. Mm-hmm. Uh, like it's a form of top drop, I think. Um, yeah. Whereas a reader who will go through a really good book and then go, oh, I've got a book hangover. And I'm like, no, that's actually, I think, a form of sub drop. You've been through an emotional experience 
and mm-hmm. had an adrenaline high, and now you're dropping. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so what you're saying is that readers are subby cat girls. I mean, I, you, I'm not not saying that. <laughs> <laughs> that that makes a huge amount of sense, though. Um, yeah, like that's that's just a pet theory of mine. Obviously, it's not like a perfect analog, mm-hmm. um, but you can have non-sexual kink, and I feel like, to some extent, engaging in emotionally complicated narratives is a form of non-sexual kink. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> Which some people aren't ready to have that conversation. (laughs) (laughs) Some people aren't, but here on Tales from the Trunk, we're always ready for that sort of conversation. (laughs) Here on here on queer horror nerd Mm -hmm. (laughs) corners of the internet, that is our conversation. Yeah, yeah. I I remember having uh, a conversation very similar to this um i think when my spouse and i were were driving home from the san jose Worldcon uh a number of years ago where i was essentially talking about how like the the great thing about horror is it is a controlled experience yeah but it's also like you said about our our brains are very simple machines in some ways and like my brain can't tell whether the silhouettes of of the monsters on the cave wall are from actual monsters or from the monsters I'm reading about and like that's kind of great cuz you can yeah. put yourself into this yeah well i mean that's the thing it's I find this whole thing fascinating because on the one hand it's it's like different it's different levels of mental and emotional processing mm-hmm. um, is what it is because we can experience if we experience fear or revulsion or arousal or joy because of a fictional narrative our body does not really discriminate it can't tell that that's come from a fictional support source as opposed to uh, you know real people around us or real events happening to us but mm-hmm. in terms of our higher intellectual processing, we know the difference. So there is that separation between like the biochemical processes that our body has and responds to on its most basic levels. But we mm-hmm. still have a higher intellect. And this is where we are able to distinguish between fiction and reality. Or right. ideally, we are able to make that distinction. Um and I think one of the one of the most tragic bits of um, brain rot floating around the internet, which is this sort of um, transferal from purity culture in a lot of instances, and it's very very sad to see it cropping up in like fandom spaces, and particularly queer fandom spaces populated mm-hmm. by very young children, like young teens, being made to feel anxious about this. Is the idea that if you like something in fiction? you must necessarily want and like it in the real world because there is no distinction. And it's like, it it makes me so distressed and so angry when I see this. And it's like, I need to explain to you, the metaphor that I've come up with, I wrote a Tumblr post about this a while ago because I, I am still on Tumblr. Mm -hmm. Yep. Same. But um, (laughs) it's the hotel California of websites. You can never leave. Mm -hmm. Um, But (laughs) But it's 
to me, the context of liking a thing, or not to me, I just think in general, the context of liking a thing is integral to whether or not you like the thing. And I think a great metaphor for this is flour. So mm-hmm. the idea, the, the, the sort of anti-logic as it gets branded, the purity culture logic of if you like something in fiction, you must like and want it all the time. And that means if you like something dark in fiction, then you are predatory, bad, horrible person. Right. And it's like, look, I like eating cake. Mm-hmm. Cake is fantastic. Pro cake. But I am not, for the love of God, ever going to sit down and just eat raw flour, mm-hmm. even though a cake contains flour. Because it's an ingredient. The context in which the flour is used is precisely what makes it palatable. Mm-hmm. Like, the context of the thing is integral to your enjoyment of the thing. It's like saying, I like eating meat. And and I do think this is actually a, a, a stupid vegan argument that I have seen made on the internet. Not, not that vegans are stupid, but, you know, periodically you'll see someone with a really hot take uh-huh. <laughs> from a particular thing. I think this was a tweet that went around somebody saying, yeah, you don't get the urge to like eat a eat roadkill off the side of the road. Therefore eating meat is unnatural. And it's like, no, actually, because the context of the meat matters. If you Mm -hmm. were to serve me up a nice, beautifully cooked steak. Yes. But that doesn't mean that because I like meat, I like all meat in every possible context. And I'm just going to pick a dead possum up off the side of the road and chow down. Like, Mm -hmm that might be a thing to explore in fiction, but in reality, no, I'm not going to do that. What the hell? How the context of something matters. And I think the thing that, one of the things that's like most low-key worrying about that attitude, about this inability to distinguish enjoying something fictionally versus in reality, Mm -hmm. um, is that it low-key erodes the notion of consent. Mm -hmm. Because it's sort of saying... If you, if you want something in one context, you want it always. Mm-hmm. And particularly because so much of this discourse relates to sexuality and sexual fantasies um, and kink and all of that kind of thing. It's like saying, well, if you, if you read about sex, then you must want sex in any context. Mm-hmm. And it's like, no, that's not actually how consent works. Yeah. The context matters. If I say yes to having sex to one person in one time at one place, that doesn't mean I'm saying yes to any any form of sex ever. You get to decide. You get to choose. But yeah. when you're pushing this line that liking something in one context means that you have said yes to it in all contexts. No. Mm-hmm. No. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's um, it's the thing of of consent has to be uh, is enthusiastic, time specific, and revocable. Yes, exactly. And I also think like because people get so people get so squeamish around the idea of acknowledging sexual fantasies as a thing that can exist separately from what you want to do sexually in real life. Mm-hmm. And it's like, look, I'm I'm going to take it. The, my favorite example for talking about this, when you take it out of, because if you start talking about any specific like darker kind of sexual desire, any kind of kink, people will get very prim about it, and they'll say, well, but if you want that, then you must, you know. Mm-hmm. And it's like, look, I'm going to give you the example: shower sex. 
It is very hot to read about shower <laughs> sex, but if you have ever tried to do it, it's it, it's a miserable experience. It's difficult. It's slippery in there. You're in a confined space. You're probably getting water in your nose or in your eyes. It it's it's a whole thing. You're probably unless you are very very limber, very very strong, or you know both of you are. There's going to be some logistical, physical strain. Mm-hmm. But when we read about it in like a, a romance novel or something, or as a sexual fantasy, you're removing the elements that make it real to focus specifically on the ones that in your mind make it most enjoyable. But that mm-hmm. doesn't mean that I want to go in and fucking sprain a hip trying to <laughs> recreate that. Like, no, I'm, I'm going to read about that in lieu of spraining a hip. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? And if you can understand that, then you should be able to understand how that applies to other things. Mm-hmm. But people don't want to do that. And, or at least they haven't, particularly if they're younger, they haven't been taught that that's something they can do. Yeah. Um, and it makes me in- unfathomably angry to see evangelical Christian ideas about purity and sexuality <laughs> infiltrating young queer spaces and being rebranded as something else yeah uh, 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 being rebranded in some ways as this uh orthodoxy of respectability politics yeah it's very it's it's very distressing and it's very it's very online <laughs> <laughs> um yeah we, we don't want the youth of today to experience what it was like to be queer when we were their age. To be clear, I don't think anybody is necessarily saying that, but I personally am saying that I wish that teens could go touch grass more. Yeah. And I think it's just... I'm going to... To quote Lillian, uh, mentioned Lillian Boyd, who did the music for your yep. show. Uh, a thing Lily often says... Uh, on on her rank and vile podcast is I'm going to say something and see if it's true. Uh-huh. Um, I'm going to say something and see if it's true. This is a nebulous thing that I've sort of been mulling for a while, and I think it is the idea of okay. I need to marshal this thought into some sort of order. Yeah, go for it. We live in a world where, unfortunately specific groups of people can pose en masse danger to other groups of people Mm -hmm. for largely cultural and historical reasons. Certain groups of people commit more horrors against other groups of people, which Mm -hmm. isn't to say that there's no trading back and forth that nobody from, you know, group B ever, ever hurts group A. That's not how people work. But generally speaking, we have social and historical mechanisms set up that more readily allow people from group A to hurt people from group B. Mm -hmm. And we have had recently sort of several moments, historical moments about pushing back on that. Mm -hmm. And those are good and right and understandable. It is good that the abuses that happen in various contexts are highlighted and criticized and that the Mm -hmm. underpinning social historical uh, reasons for them are laid bare. However, sometimes this gets shorthanded 
into all people. Like the most classic example here is like, yes, all men. Mm -hmm. Like people going, not all men, yes, all men. And I've come to this point where I'm like, okay, I understand why. Because there is so much horror there. I understand why yes all men or enough men i understand like this the poison skittle metaphor i understand why this piece of dialogue has happened because people are hurt and angry and this is still a problem mm-hmm. however it's not actually helpful because it does not do anything to teach you which specific people to avoid if you mm-hmm. are taught to be frightened of a whole group of people uniformly, then it distills, it, it not distills, it hampers your ability to look for actual red flags. Mm-hmm. And I feel like there are other, um, other contexts in which I can see this happening where people are so concerned about uh, predatory behavior from one group of people that they say, just be wary of that one group of people. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't work because while these are specifically like common axes of oppression where, you know, group, group A persecute group B, it's not the only thing to be wary of. And I think distilling it down into these simple beware that category of people thing not only hampers your ability to identify actual red flags when you encounter them, if you're just treating everybody with suspicion, you're not going to be able to know who is really a danger to you. It actually increases your ability to get fooled Mm -hmm. um, because you're not critically judging. Um, But it leaves you vulnerable to other forms of abuse because you have concentrated all of your anxiety into that one group of people. You Like to use a D&D metaphor, you have put like all of your fear points into that one category. And mm-hmm. now you don't know how to be cautious of other people. And then, but if you say to somebody like any, if you would apply that logic across the board, like a person from this group could hurt you. A person from that group could hurt you. Here are 16 different groups of people that could potentially hurt you. You can't be maxed out on being afraid of them or wary of them at all times, because then you just become paranoid and that's no way to function behaviorally. Right. The only way to function is to be able to, on to some extent, make intelligent judgments about the, pe- the specific people that you encounter. You can keep the systematic problem that is influencing those people in mind because then you can see patterns mm-hmm. and you can address wider social mechanisms that are causing this problem. But in terms of your individual interactions, you need to be able to look for individual red flags and the reason that i bring this up in the in the sort of um puritan context Mm -hmm. so much of this anxiety is around the idea of older people or adults as predators towards Mm -hmm. teenagers or or tweens and it's like if you and i feel like this is the most distilled example of it where you can see how badly wrong it goes when you teach a group of people to be unanimously wary of people in a different group. It leaves them so vulnerable when you have this anxiety. And the thing is, it's a real anxiety. There are Mm -hmm. predatory adults. There are predatory adults who specifically and consistently target teenagers and younger people. And that's horrific. 
that is a real thing, a real systemic problem that exists that needs to be addressed. But if you just teach all teenagers to be wary of all adults, not only do you inhibit them from recognizing safe adults, Mm -hmm. but you have told them that these are the people that you need to be wary of, and it blinds them to what it will look like if they are being abused or hurt or manipulated by someone their own age or mm-hmm. even by someone younger because that does happen if you teach people that one group of people is uniformly safe or is uniformly the victim you don't allow them to like where do they go then and so i feel like you end up with these contexts where te- like some t- like they're terrified to turn like 18 cuz it's like no if i still like if I still like the 15-year-old character that has been my comfort character since I was 10, if I still like them when mm-hmm. I was, you know, when I'm 18, then suddenly I'll be a predator. Right. And, I, and I've got no one to talk to about that. And I can't be friends with somebody who's younger than me anymore. And, like, I, the thing that really blew my mind, I saw a, a thread. Um, it was a screenshots of, uh, it was on Twitter, and someone had screenshot a TikTok comment section with a lot of, these teenagers sharing these anxieties about what it would mean for them when they've grown up with this Puritan, um, you have to be scared of adults Mm -hmm. idea and adults who are interested in anyone who is a teenager are inherently predatory. And it's, there's no in between being genuinely frightened about the prospect of becoming adults, but also had been training themselves in some cases to be attracted to older and older characters because that was safer because it meant you couldn't age out of liking the character. Mm-hmm. So you would have someone who was 15 who natively would want, you know, would gravitate towards other teenage characters, but would then think, Oh, but I'm not going to be able to keep liking these characters in a few years. So I can't mm-hmm. invest in them. So instead I'm going to focus on like adults. And I'm like, how do you not see that this is bringing you perilously close to inciting the behavior you were so worried about in the first place, which is adults exploiting teenagers. Mm-hmm. Like, yes, that's a fictional character. The fictional character can't hurt you. By all means, imprint on a fictional character. But if you have somehow come around to this point where you are afraid to sexually, emotionally, romantically engage with people your own age mm-hmm. in any sort of medium, even in a fictional medium, because you are worried about being seen as a predator. That's not a safe emotional space for you to be in, in terms of interacting with people in the real world, especially if you have simultaneously convinced yourself that fictional desires are equivalent to real desires. Mm -hmm. Like if that's the context in which all of this anxiety takes place, that liking something in a fictional way means you must want it in real life. And you've, use that to say, well, I can't like teenagers fictionally because then I might be a predator in real life. Therefore, I, the teenager, can only be interested in adult characters, which means that you can only be interested in adults in by your own logic. In real, mm-hmm. like, It's just setting up the same thing that you're afraid of. And I just think, yeah, anyway, so I'm rambling a bit, but I, I just feel like I get, there are so many of these instances where, yes, all, you know, member of X group, it's like, I understand, I really understand the pain and the hurt and the systematic um, problems and the uh, oftentimes, you know, horrific abuses that, that go on, on in that dynamic. 
but mm-hmm. you're not actually helping anyone to avoid potential predators by by giving them a blanket denunciation of that group. Right. Like it doesn't. That's not that. That's not giving them a tool to help keep themselves safe. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not telling you how to assess the danger levels of the people around you. That's just teaching you to be afraid, and being afraid makes you more vulnerable ultimately. Hmm. Yeah, and like. Not to mention even just, like, a kid who just turned 18 yesterday has much more in common with their 16-year-old best friend than they do with a 50-year-old divorcee with a mortgage and child support payments. Yeah. And it's, it's like, this whole idea of breaking up people into age bands... And, you know, that shall not associate across those lines. Mm-hmm. It's like, no, that stratification is itself part of the problem. Like, because it, it's it's predicated on this idea, firstly, that life experience is linear. Mm-hmm. That if you are, you know, that it's looking at ages as like video game levels. Like if you're uh-huh. level 15, then you can't have anything in common with somebody who is level 30. Except that somebody who is level 30 was once level 15. And... There is no linear path from one to the other that that exists in every single instance. Mm-hmm. Like somebody who is twenty five, for instance, might be in a relationship with someone who is thirty one, and the person who is twenty five can have more relationship experience than the person who is thirty one. Like mm-hmm. it doesn't it it doesn't follow. But when you insist on everybody be age stratified, what it means is that you are more vulnerable when you cross those imposed boundaries because you're mm-hmm. not going to be doing it casually. So you don't have a frame of reference or as well developed a frame of reference for what a wide range of people look like. If, yeah. you, if you are used to hanging out with people of all ages, then when somebody who is you know older than you, younger than you, the same age as you, whatever when somebody starts to behave in a weird or creepy fashion you can situate it better Mm -hmm. oh this isn't just a function of them being whatever age because i know other people who are that age and they don't behave like that Mm -hmm. and this is not a you know you have a better basis for comparison to go oh actually no something is sus here and if you have a question then you can take the question to somebody else who is that age who is safe Mm-hmm. and say hey what's up with this person yeah but if you only know that one person like it, i don't know i just feel like the whole thing leaves so much vulnerability and we we just don't we don't talk about how even when fear is rational like mm-hmm. when fear comes from a rational place or wariness comes from a rational place the act of being afraid all the time is not helping you to make the best emotional decisions and it is making you vulnerable and it is impeding your judgment. Mm -hmm. Um, And so when that fear is taught as a way to protect yourself, it's like, that's the opposite of what, like, if you just make people afraid all the time, they're not going to make the best judgments. Yeah. Um, I mean, look at America. I mean, look at America ever, but like the, the context I have specifically is like, look at pre-9-11 America versus post-9-11, like, 
George Bush's America was exactly that. I remember, yeah. you know, if yeah, you're not I, if you're not waving your flag proudly every single day, like that person's a terrorist. You know, that person's working for the yeah. enemy, and that's the sort of yeah. And I think also we forget that, and and this ties into so many other issues of like. Um, identity and bodily autonomy um but the presence of fear or the presence of discomfort does not mean that you are actually in danger mm -hmm. and i think a really important example to remember of that is like when you see for instance uh white women gratuitously calling the cops on black men because uh -huh. they have been trained or have trained themselves to view anyone who is black and particularly black men is inherently threatening and mm -hmm. justify it with that oh but men are inherently threatening and it's like bitch you're not treating your dad this way mm -hmm. you're not you're not treating your brother's friend this way you targeted him and you can't then claim oh but i was afraid as a justification like the the fear was not based on anything but we mm -hmm. have this this other cultural context where we say oh yes all men therefore your fear is is justified and we don't like to examine how that breaks down in individual instances and it's like no that's not if you just if you are looking to be afraid and that doesn't just which isn't to say there's no danger ever there is mm -hmm. but if you your your spider sense is broken your spider sense isn't tingling it's fucking broken right and in and if you are just saying oh but i felt afraid therefore i'm i'm allowed to lash out therefore i'm allowed to do this no that very bad things happen when people mm -hmm. use fear to justify preemptive action yeah um it, particularly in this country yeah yeah and it's um it is difficult to grow without discomfort the the act of growth requires a certain level of discomfort and to be uh you know to to automatically think oh this is uncomfortable so i immediately have to ripcord out of this is like not a growth forward mindset no which isn't to say that you have like and this is one of those things where black and white mentality is so deeply unhelpful because you will make a statement like that and people will mm -hmm. go oh, so you're saying that I can never tap out when I'm uncomfortable. I, I always have to experience discomfort. And it's like, no, no, you get to control. Or yeah. ideally, you get to control when and how you experience the discomfort of growth. Realistically, growth will be thrust upon you at certain points and mm -hmm. you will just have to react to it. But returning to our original topic, this is why fiction is so important, is that it often allows you to experience that discomfort and that potential growth in a way that is safe and controlled you can mm -hmm. see an aspect of the world that really exists or an aspect of human nature that really exists and you can experience it safely and emerge from the end of a book or a movie or a tv show and go wow i understand so much more about people now than i did at the beginning i have experienced growth as a result mm -hmm. of this work of fiction that i can now carry with me into my interactions with real human beings yeah yeah. And, you know, briefly to to step over onto the writer's side of that, like, being able to write about, you know, 
uh, scary murderer or whatever, like, being able to write these situations can be deeply, deeply helpful in a way of exercising control over something that previously was out of your control. Yeah. It's, it's like the one, one of the things that makes me so angry about this um, Puritan like approach to fiction and everything is the idea that there is only one possible reason to write something and only Mm -hmm. one possible way that you could be interpreting it. And I'm like, that's fundamentally antithetical to the entire notion of creativity in fiction. Like Mm -hmm. if you're saying this story contained like a dark sexual element, therefore the only reason that you could write that is because you want to do that or have that happen in real life. And the only reason that you could enjoy reading it is because you want to do that or have that happen in real life. And it's like, no, what, what other element of fiction would you say that about? Mm -hmm. Like, are we saying that anyone who has read a murder mystery wants murder to happen Mm -hmm. or is a murderer? No, we don't say that in any other thing, but for some reason, because we have so much, it's only for some reason it's it's fucking christianity but it's like for for some cultural reason we have more hang-ups around the idea of that specific set of biochemical reactions than any of the others yeah like it that's not how fiction works you don't know what somebody is thinking when they create a piece of work unless Mm -hmm. you ask them and even if they say, here is exactly what I was thinking and exactly what I was aiming to achieve, death of the author still fucking exists. Not everybody is going to receive that work the same way. Mm-hmm. Whether or not a piece of work contains what you might think of as as dark or difficult elements doesn't mean it can't have a dark or a damaging effect on somebody who reads it at the wrong time. Mm-hmm. Um, or who or who reads it without guidance, or who just is not equipped for that particular narrative at that particular time. Like, right. Watership Down, for instance. <laughs> Story about bunnies. Yeah, just Story about nothing bunnies. bad could ever happen. Bad things happen in that book. Nobody would, like, you can be genuinely messed up by mm-hmm. Watership Down. You could be messed up by that book as a 45-year-old adult. Mm-hmm. I personally also... was traumatized by the movie at around eight, but, you know. Yeah. But that's the thing. You could also read it at 11 and think it was the most incredible work of fiction. Mm-hmm. People are different, and I shouldn't have to get a fucking bullhorn to say that. <laughs> and yet. And yet. And yet. Yeah. Well, this this weird sound just uh just i don't know if it came through the microphone but uh this blue police box just landed in the room the podcast room and i'm gonna tell the doctor to just fuck right off because we've we've had a lot of words of wisdom already we don't need his time machine today (laughs) um but i but i am i am glad to be able to bring that deeply corny bit to every episode because it fills my heart with joy and just because i enjoy time travel stories doesn't mean i actually want to travel in time 
I think it would probably be kind of terrible. Yeah. <laughs> um, Foz, you've had so many amazing things to say. I'm really super grateful for having you on the show. A couple of quick things before we get going. First off, is there anything that uh, you would like our listeners to know that about that you have coming out shortly that has released recently? I know you've mentioned uh, a novel already. Yes. So the novel I have out at the moment, uh, the most recent one, uh, is A Strange and Stubborn Endurance, which is a queer romantic fantasy um, from Tor. The sequel to that, uh, which is a direct sequel, All the Hidden Paths, is coming out in December. Fantastic. Um, and I believe um, EARCs are up on Edelweiss at the moment. Excellent. Well, if you are somebody um, who has Edelweiss, go ahead and request that. Leave a nice review. Make sure that you that all your friends know about it. If you don't have it, ask your library to stock it. Ask your local indie to stock it when it comes out. Uh, and of course, read book one, please. <laughs> I also I also have uh, another queer uh, fantasy novella that is coming out with Neon Hemlock um, later in the year. I think around uh, November or December, called Finding Echoes. Excellent. Um, we absolutely adore Neon Hemlock here at Tales from the Trunk. Uh, Dave just puts out amazing things left, right, and center. He truly does. Uh, I, I just got my copy of Luminescent Machinations in the mail on Saturday, and it was nice. delightful. <laughs> uh, with, with that said... Is there anything that you've been enjoying in the wider media landscape that you'd like our listeners to know about? Wider media landscape. Um, so the three shows that that sort of ate my brain in the last <laughs> year or two, uh, and which I I I'm just low key obsessed with at all times. Um, one is The Untamed, mm -hmm. which uh, is the um, live action adaptation of uh grandmaster of demonic cultivation uh which is a novel i'm going to butcher the tones on this name i'm so sorry uh which is the uh chinese uh dame um very very good love that show love the book as well mm -hmm. um which is being translated by seven seas in multiple volumes and is now out um also her other her other works heaven officials blessing and scumville and self-saving system are brilliant i I'm still mm -hmm. reading um, Heaven Official's Blessing because it's still being translated. But oh my god, that I, I yelling, yelling mm -hmm. about that about that book. Um, but the other two shows are Beyond Evil, uh, which is a Korean um, police drama, which mm -hmm. seemingly on the on the surface of things is like every other police drama you've ever seen, with like older cop and young hotshot cop trying to solve uh, the murder of. Uh, women, which is happening now, mirroring events that happened 20 years ago, except it's not what you think it is, and it is subverting a huge number of tropes that are common to the genre. Oh, nice. It is expressly investigating, um, like, it, it, I can't say what it's doing really without <laughs> spoilers, um, but it is one of the most sort of, like, nuanced and incredibly emotionally affecting 
oh, very uh, cool. entries in this genre that I've ever seen. It's it's not canonically queer, but you only have to take a half step sideways <laughs> to perceive a incredible uh, romantic sexual tension between the two male leads. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not and, canonically queer, but you wouldn't know that if you asked AO3. Yeah, well, it's it's one of those things where it's like, there's a lot of sub in that text, <laughs> is what I'm saying. Um, and then the third one is a Thai BL show called Kinposh, uh, mm, which is, mm-hmm. um, what if um, queer, like, what if gay mafia bodyguard romance, and we Ooh. leaned into all of the violence and power dynamics and conversations about there is no consent under capitalism and Mm -hmm. um, fuckiness inherent in that premise. That sounds incredible. Yeah, so you can watch that. You want the unexpurgated version, which is on... um, Because I think you can find, like, the censored version on YouTube, but Mm -hmm. you want the full version, which is on Aichi. Okay. But yeah, those those three shows and like all versions of the Untamed slash mm-hmm. Grandmaster of Demonic Cultivation, um, yeah, that lives rent free in my head at all, at all times. <laughs> uh, it's funny because I was just having a conversation with my friend the other day because they were picking up the uh, the newest volume of that that had just come in at their local indie. Mm. So uh, yeah. I, I can I can never escape, uh, even though I've not personally experienced the Untamed in any form. I cannot you escape should. everyone around me. <laughs> it's look, listen, listen, listen. Do you like gay romance? Yes. Do you like horror? Yes. Do you like discussions of power and violence and who writes history? And who controls history and the stories thereof and nuanced explorations of politics. Let me show you my bookshelves. Yes. Do you like gay necromancers? Yes. Yes. Then you need to yeah. go to the untamed. <laughs> Run, do not walk. I. It is, it is on my list. I promise you that much. I am just very slow at media sometimes. <laughs> But I will, I will come and yell at you and all my other untamed consuming friends as soon as I have jumped in. Please do. It's, I've, I've been trying to get Lily to watch it <laughs> since I was watching it, and I don't think she has yet. But it's, it's one of those things where it's like, you know a friend is going to, if they actually sit down and watch something, mm-hmm. you know it's going to be their jam. And so you're just sort of sitting there trying to vibrate about it like a normal amount. <laughs> Just the like normal and I'm I normal am amount. so normal about things. I'm I, I got into K-pop like a year or so ago, and I'm so normal about it. I'm I'm just like the most normal a human being has ever been. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> uh, do you have one music video recommendation for our listeners at home? Yes. Okay. No, I have two. So I'm okay. a Stray Kids. I'm a Stray Kids fan. Um, Hell yeah, Stray Kids. Stray Kids. Uh, Red lights. Mm-hmm. The music video and Venom. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, yes, those those are the two. Particularly if you are celebrating Pride Month for personal reasons, shall we say? Mm-hmm. Um, the the Red Lights MV may be compelling to you um, for reasons. 
Yep. Um, also the group only one of. Um, oh, nice. Who's, who's expressed sort of output is like very queer on main in a very mm, mm-hmm. like purposeful we are telling romantic queer stories in our MVs and we're not apologizing for that kind of way. Mm-hmm. Well, fantastic. Um, Listeners, of course, links to all of these things will be in the show notes uh, accompanying this. Foz, before we get going, where can our listeners find you elsewhere? Uh, I am For My Sins on Twitter, Tumblr, TikTok, pretty much anywhere as at Foz Meadows. Fantastic. Well, Foz, thank you so, so much for joining us for absolutely an incredible pride month uh it has been such a pleasure likewise thank you very much for having me absolutely tales from the trunk is mixed and produced in beautiful oakland california our theme music is paper wings by lillian boyd you can support the show on patreon at patreon.com trunkcast all patrons of the show now get a sticker and logo button along with show outtakes and other content that can't be found anywhere else. You can find the show on Twitter, unfortunately, at TrunkCast, and I tweet, occasionally, at HVBisniex. If you like the show, consider taking a moment to rate and review us on your preferred podcast platform. And remember, don't self-reject. <laughs> <laughs>